That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying, that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is God's word for us this morning. Welcome to church, everyone. Welcome to church. It's good to be with you. If we've not met, my name is Jason Wigan. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new to our church or maybe just still checking things out, if you're here because someone invited you or you just walked in on your own, we're so glad uh, just to be able to be with you this morning. And of course, uh, with us in spirit are all of our friends who are online and everyone who's holding it down in Hayward. Uh, I'm just glad that even in spirit and in in, uh, physical nature, we can all be together this morning. We are continuing in our series called Explore God, this Bay Area-wide series, which we've been saying where over 100 churches are participating, asking, I think, some very important questions in regards to faith, religion, and life, and and attempting to give some answers to these questions. And what, what is a great resource is that all of these sermons are actually available on our website and through the church app. And we're going to jump right into it today, asking the question, is the Bible reliable? Or maybe another way to ask that question is, can you trust the authenticity of the Bible? Now, what you're going to see on the screen behind me now is a QR code And I'll tell you why that's there. If you scan that QR code, it'll take you to a PDF that you can download. And it's going to give you, on that PDF is a lot of information that I'm going to share this morning. uh, Because here's why. And this is what I've learned from Thursday night service and the 9 a.m. And I gave this warning, and I don't think people believe me. This morning is going to be very, at the beginning of the sermon, is going to be very info-heavy. Okay? And uh, you might feel the, uh, the urge to, some of you are going to track well with that because that's just who you are. And then others, you might start to kind of go, eh, okay, and count the ceiling tiles or the lights or something like that. I, here, here's why that, that PDF is there, because I want you to be able to not only go track some of the information that I'm going to give you, but also just in case you miss something, or if you're a heavy note taker, I want you to just be able to dial in and listen this morning. Does that make sense? 
Uh, so anyway, that is there available for you. Now, many people in a place like the Bay Area would say, uh, I've heard them say things like this, growing up in the Bay Area, I've heard this, that there are many good things in the Bible, uh, but it, you shouldn't take every word of it literally. The woman on the, on the video said that. Uh, I've heard this many times from people. People say, and, and I've often wondered what they meant by that, and what I think they mean by that is that there are many good things in the Bible, but that you should not insist that everyone believe and follow everything in it. Because in the Bible, there's some things that are good and that there are some things that are bad, some things that are true and then some things that are not true. Some things are right, some other things are wrong. And some things should be just completely done away with. And a lot of it might even be, you, a person might say, well, that's historically unreliable. We don't know what actually happened. And on top of that, much of the Bible is culturally regressive. And thus, for all of those reasons, it's not entirely trustworthy or authoritative or worthy for our acceptance. And what I would like to do this morning is to actually argue to the contrary. And as I said, to do so, we're going to go through a lot of information. And so I invite you to dig deep into that cup of coffee and donut you had right before the service and trust in that sugar to awaken you because, what, again, what I want to do is show you why the Bible, for three reasons mainly, why the Bible is trustworthy, why it is reliable, and why it is authoritative. So we're going to look at the, to do that, we're going to look at the assembly of the Bible, the authenticity, and also the applicability. Let's first start with the assembly. Uh, what is the Bible? The Bible is a, not one book, but it's actually a library of books that all emerged out of the history of ancient Israel. Uh, in one sense, Israel, ancient Israel was like every other civilization in the past, uh, but among them there was a long line of individuals who were called prophets, and they viewed Israel's history as anything but ordinary. In fact, they saw Israel's history as a central part of what God was doing to redeem all of humanity. Now these prophets expertly crafted the Hebrew language and they wrote narratives and poetry. Uh, they were sophisticated in writing uh, literature and historical accounts and prophetic messages. And they were masters at storytelling and metaphors. And they leveraged all of this to explore, through the, the writings of Scripture, to explore life's most complicated questions about death, about life, about family, about the human struggle, and particularly how all of those things work themselves out under the covering of God. Now, the Jewish Bible, the, the, what we call the Old Testament, the Jews don't call the Old Testament. They refer to that as the Tanakh, which is an acronym. The T stands for Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. The N stands for Nevi'im, which is a Hebrew word for prophets. And the K stands for Ketuvim, which is a Hebrew word for writings, which would uh, include the Psalms and Proverbs and other books like that. And the Jews believed that all of these literary works were from God and were speaking to the people. And at the end of the Tanakh, there was a pointing to or an expectation of a great leader who would come and lead the people of Israel to a whole new creation. Now in the New Testament, we are introduced, in the Gospels, we are introduced 
to who that leader is. And if you're a Christian, you would say that the leader that the Jews were looking for is fulfilled in Jesus. And the New Testament writers, through all of their writing, through their recordings, didn't feel like they were writing a New Testament per se, but felt as though they were continuing in the revelation of what God was doing in all of the world. They believed that God was speaking through his people and included these different texts. Now, what's important to note is that the entire Bible consists of 40 different authors from three different continents living in vastly different cultures, over a span, was written over a span of 1,500 years, and as we're going to see later in the sermon, tells one story. One story. Now, how did we get the Bible? First, we look at manuscripts. When you look at your Bible, uh, what you see are nicely printed letters, on really thin paper, um, I'm, this is if you're holding an actual codex and you're not scrolling through on your phone, um, and if you're like me and you have your Bible, you are uh, maybe a little bit prideful and for whatever reason you have not switched to large print um, because you're just not ready to take that step. That's just me. That's where I'm at right now. Pray for my heart, okay? Now, this is not what the ancients held in their hands. You have to realize that before the printing press and modern technology, everything was written on scrolls or papyrus. And the process for copying documents in the ancient world was such, and we don't have time to talk about it, but just know this, that when, uh, when writers or when scribes would be copying an official document to make several copies of whatever it was, the process was, uh, to say the least, arduous. And if you made a mistake anywhere on the document, you threw the whole thing away. Even so, on a scroll, there was no delete button, there was no backup, there was no whiteout, there was none of that. You threw the whole thing away. Um, and even if you had stacks of pages, you would still throw, if you're writing everything, maybe it's a 20-page document or whatever it is, if you got to page 19 and made a mistake, you threw the whole thing away. Because even though it was only page 19 that was corrupted, the whole document would be considered corrupted. Okay? Now, that fact alone of that copying process makes uh, this next chart incredibly impactful. If you look at this chart, this has a list of ancient manuscripts. Now, most, most ancient manuscripts and writings that ever existed in the world are lost to history. We have no idea where they are. They're gone. We'll never find them again. They're just completely gone. But many have uh, stood the test of time. If you look at this chart, and you look at, not, 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 not those big bar graphs on the left, but if you look at all of the other ones on the right, these are numbers of uh, copies or fragments of ancient documents. Now, if you, and again, this chart is on that PDF that uh, we put up. Uh, and if you look at this chart, you'll recognize maybe some works that you had to read in college or in high school and you were trying to forget. Um, but what this, says, this shows is the number of copies or fragments that actually exist. Like, you can go to a museum, and you can look up the works of Josephus, and if you go all around the world, you'll be able to find 56 either copies or fragments of copies of the works of Josephus, as shown on the graph. Did it say 56 or 55? See? Glasses. I'm just, I'm, here we go. Come on. Now look at those other two bar graphs, right? It shows that the Greek New Testament, there are over 5,600 copies or fragments of copies of the Greek New Testament. 
Like you can go to a museum, you can look it up and find it. Now look at what it is for all languages of the New Testament. Do you see that? Almost 24,000. Now what does that tell you? That tells you that in the ancient world, the New Testament was seen as a document worth copying, worth preserving. Is this a proof of the reliability of the New Testament? No, but as we talked about many weeks ago, it is an evidence that the ancients felt that the process of recording and copying the works of the New Testament was so valuable, more so than any other work, that is why we have, and if you look at the numbers, almost 30,000 full copies or fragments of the New Testament. That is the manuscripts. How about conglomeration, or how they all came together? Now, we'll do this briefly. The question is, how did we get the Bible as we know it today? Well, first of all, I'll say that the Old Testament has almost been always universally accepted by scholars, by the ancients as authoritative and as authentic. So what we are reading in the Old Testament, it has been almost always universally accepted as, okay, that's what was written when it was originally written, that it hasn't changed at all. In terms of the New Testament, though, the early church fathers would take the books like the Gospels and Acts and the letters of Paul and such and put them through a three-question test as to whether or not they were authentic. And they would say, who wrote it? That was the first question. So who wrote it? Was, was it an apostle who had interaction with Jesus or someone who uh, walked closely with an apostle? The second was, who received it? So what churches actually received this letter in the ancient world and thought that it was authoritative? And then finally, what does it say about Jesus? Because there were many writings that were circulated throughout the ancient world, but they didn't all say the same thing about Jesus. Some would doubt his deity. Some would say he wasn't born of a virgin. Uh, and so it, they always had to align together and say the exact same things about Jesus. Now, if you look at this next chart, uh, or this next picture, uh, the, the, the lines in red are everywhere the, new, the, everywhere the Old Testament points to something in the future and is achieved and uh, done by Jesus in the New Testament. All those red lines are something from the Old Testament that points to the New Testament. The blue lines are every time someone in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament actually references the Old Testament. So what does this picture tell us? This picture tells us that the writers of the Old Testament were looking ahead to the future and all those things were fulfilled in the New Testament, and that the writers of the New Testament drew heavily from the Old Testament. And that just, again, speaks to its authenticity. That's the assembly. Now the Bible's authenticity. Um, one of the most common retorts against the Bible's reliability has to do with historical and cultural objections. Uh, one of the things it said is, oh, it's too old, you know, it's 2023, and we've moved on. We don't need the Bible anymore. We're, we're an advanced, modern, postmodern society. We've dumped Christendom. We don't need that anymore. The Bible is, it's nice to have copies of it, but we don't really need that. Or people will say, well, the Bible is just too regressive. I mean, look at what it teaches. I mean, it's embarrassing to see and to accept and to believe the things that the Bible actually teaches. And what I want to show you 
is actually the historical nature of the Bible and the cultural differences within it are actually reasons, robust reasons, to trust the authenticity of it. First, let's look at the historical authenticity. Um, The New Testament accounts of Jesus were written way too early to be legends about Jesus. Some of the New Testament writings uh, came about 15 to 20 years after the life of Jesus. And in these writings, the Apostle Paul does this many times, in these writings there are names and there are events where if you were writing and you included someone's name in it, that person, as an eyewitness, anybody could go to that eyewitness and say, hey, um, this guy said that you were there and you saw Jesus and you, you can give an account to all that happened. Is that true? And he would say, or she would say, uh, yeah, I was there. I can tell you all about it. I saw it. Um, if it wasn't true, then the names that are given in the scriptures, uh, in the writings, anybody could go through and say, wait a minute, it says that you were there at that event. Were you there? And the person would say, no, I wasn't there. I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, you look at this chart that's put up on the, uh, the dates of New Testament writings, um, you can see that they were all very close to the life of Jesus. I mean, look at it this way, okay? Let's just say that after church today, after the service, uh, you and your family decide to go to In-N-Out for lunch, okay? And you're there, and the guy behind the counter is like, well, what would you like? And you're like, man, before we get to that, let me tell you what happened at church today. Okay, so Pastor Jason, as usual, was preaching up a storm, okay, and the, the roof opened up, and there was trumpets, and there was horns and violins, and angels descended in the room, and there was an earthquake, and it was amazing. It was amazing. And the guy's like, okay, so do you want a number one or a number two, right? <laughs> and this is an in and out, sir. And, and then somebody who was also here this morning, shows up and you're like, oh, Jill, you were there. Tell, tell him what you saw. Uh, I don't know. He got up and talked about a lot of facts and boring stuff, and I fell asleep halfway through. I'm not sure what happened. If that's what happened, then what is the guy behind the counter going to say? Okay, then what really happened, right? My point is this. The fact that so many New Testament writers give names and historical accounts their works could have been discredited immediately. And the only reason why they would have included them was because that's what happened. That's what happened. Secondly, the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is my favorite one, by the way, the Old Testament and New Testament are counterproductive, way too counterproductive to be fake. So the theory is, okay, so the writers of the Bible They wanted to manipulate people, they wanted to control people, and so they crafted this narrative, uh, a story about the events that took place, and they made it this way so they could control people, they could persuade people to their beliefs. And the problem with that is if you were going to make up a story in order to persuade people, to manipulate people, you would not include almost all of the stories of the Bible with all of the characters because they do some dumb sauce things all the time. And if you were trying to say, see, look how awesome it is to be a follower of God, your life always works out and you never make mistakes because that's not the Bible. 
that's not the Bible at all. I mean, Noah was a drunk. Abraham uh, was a liar. Sarah, his wife, laughed in God's face. Moses had doubts. Samson, a womanizer. King David was a murderer. The apostle Peter, the leader of the New Testament church for, for a minute, cut a guy's ear off because of his lack of faith. Jesus himself in the garden. What does he do? Darkest moment for our Lord and Savior. And he says to the Father, I know this is why I came, but if there's another way, can we do that? See, why would you include all of these stories? Why would you include all of these stories if you were trying to trick people and manipulate people? You wouldn't write them unless they actually happened. Unless they actually happened. Finally, uh, the Bible is way too detailed in its form to be, uh, to be, to be um, fiction. Now, modern fiction that developed in the uh, 17th, 18th century, um, it introduced the world to the novel. Now, for us today, we thought, maybe you thought that was just always was, if you read something like Lord of the Rings or Pride and Prejudice or something like that. That's just always existed. That's how stories have always been told, and that's not true. That form of storytelling with uh, incredible uh, detail and events, uh, that actually didn't come about until the 17th century. Now, if you read, if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, the writing is way too detailed, way too detailed. To be, uh, to be fiction, because back then, fiction was not written with so much detail. Uh, the fact that there are names and dates and events uh, gives, gives credence to the idea, again, that this was not novels, this was historical reportage. In fact, C.S. Lewis said this, either this is historical reportage or some unknown ancient writer with no knowledge of the future of literature happened to write in the same style as modern fiction. The best guess, the most logical conclusion, is that these were recorded because they actually happened. Now, that's the historical authenticity. How about cultural? Most people actually aren't troubled by the historical aspects of the Bible. Um, it's more the cultural. It's more the cultural aspects of the Bible um, what the Bible teaches about sin, about guilt, about sexuality, about morality. And many people actually drop or don't investigate any further into the scriptures because they read something or they heard something about the Bible and, um, and, and dropped it and walked away. And I would say there's three, three good practices for all of us to employ if we come to a passage of the Bible that upsets us. And the first one is this. Please consider that the Bible doesn't teach you what you think it's teaching you. Please consider that the Bible is not teaching you what it, you think it's teaching you. Now, this may seem uh, obvious, but I am never surprised at how often I'm perplexed by something I've read in the Bible, only to later find out, oh, that's not what's actually being taught here. Uh, I'll give you two examples from the Old Testament. So, um, there were... Uh, it's polygamy and primogeniture. Now, what's the second one? I'll tell you in a second. Polygamy, we know what that is, okay? Uh, many wives, okay? Married to multiple wives. Primogeniture is the practice where you would give the blessing to your firstborn son, 
okay? And these were not just in ancient Israel, but in ancient civilization, these were universal practices. This is what everybody was doing in ancient times. And the Bible blows up both of them. Because even though you read about both practices, uh, especially polygamy, just, just go do a little reading. Every example of polygamy in the Old Testament, it ain't a happy home. Every single one of them. There's not a single one where like, all the wives are together going, oh man, isn't this awesome? And our kids all get along and there's no strife at all in the house and everybody's just happy. That never happens. I mean, read, read it. Like, no one is ever happy in a polygamous home. Primogeniture, the blessing going to the firstborn. How many times does God turn that on its head? I mean, think about it. Think about Isaac, not the firstborn. Jacob, not the firstborn. Joseph, Judah, David, all of these folks who are not the firstborn child who received the blessing. And what does that tell you? It tells you that the Bible is not interested in man's ways, it's interested in God's way. So consider that the Bible's not teaching you what it, you think it's teaching you. Secondly, consider that you are misunderstanding what the Bible is teaching because of your own cultural blinders and understanding. Uh, for many of us who have um, who've lived in the Bay Area our whole lives and have been just, and I'll use this word on purpose, indoctrinated with uh, Western individualistic postmodern uh, culture, we're, we're swimming in it. We can't, we can't escape it. It's just all around us. And we have no idea how much that influences our reading of the Bible. And so we have these cultural blinders on us where we read something and we automatically think something in our head. I'll give you an example that's going to might make a little of you a couple of you nervous, but just stay with me here. It's the issue of slavery. So people read the Bible and they might say, "Well, the Bible totally condones slavery." It absolutely Look at Paul, Paul in the New Testament. What does he say? "Slaves obey your masters." See, the Bible is condoning slavery. Okay. Let's calm down. Let's take a step back and let's ask the question, what are my cultural perspectives or blinders telling me about this? Most of us, growing up in America, when we think of slavery, we think of 17th, 18th, excuse me, 16th, 17th century, century chattel slavery, race-based, uh, kidnapped from Africa, brought to the new, the new world. Okay? An abomination for sure. Let's, all, let's make sure we're all clear on that. When the Bible talks about slavery, especially in the New Testament, most of the time, or what it's referring to, is not chattel, race-based slavery, but it's referring to indentured servitude. Which, by the way, if you were an indentured servant, or they used the word slave, you had rights, you could earn income, you were educated, you had uh, sometimes positions of power and influence. And many people, at this time, as Paul's writing, voluntarily put themselves into indentured servitude to pay off a debt, to uh, move up in uh, social status, uh, to gain influence with a certain group. I mean, there were many reasons for that. The reason why I say all that is because we have to be very careful. And, uh, and I'm not even saying indentured servitude is a good thing. What I'm saying is we have to realize that when we read something in the scriptures, when we read something in the Bible, we have to be aware of our own cultural blinders as we're reading it. Does that make sense? Because we all have it. 
I'll give you one more. Consider that you're misunderstanding the Bible because of an unexamined superiority of your cultural moment. Stole that line from Tim Keller. Consider that you're misunderstanding the Bible because of an unexamined superiority of your cultural moment. Our cultural moment includes both the time and space in which we live and perceive the world. And here's, here's the big problem that most, most of us have, especially, uh, I was going to say modern people, but it's really everybody. Everybody always believes that the now is the most superior time in all of human history. We have the best understanding, we have the best perception and clarity on the world. Everyone else before us was a despicable, backward dolt who did not understand. See, they got everything wrong, we're getting everything right. Now, no one ever says that, but when we look at history, we do think that. And so, at times, it's not only cultural blinders, but also a cultural superiority. And so we say, well, our culture, in the, our culture in the West, in 2023, we understand the world, we understand politics, we understand sexuality, we understand family better than anyone else ever did ever before. And so my understanding of culture in the world is better than everyone else's. And I would say this, why should, why should your cultural sensitivities and superiority trump everyone else's? Why should the way that we look at the world, here at Resonate Church, Resonators, why should the way that we look at the world and the way that we look at the Bible trump everyone else's? Now, I think I'm getting the Bible right, but I do know that I am prone to error and that I have my own <laughs> superiority that I'm dealing with. I mean, I just, gave, I just said it out loud. I just aired that right in front of you. My point is, we all do it. We all do it. So that's the Bible's authenticity. Now let's look at the Bible's applicability. And we're about to make a shift here. Because if we're being honest, it's been a bit of a lecture this whole way through, right? It has. It has. And I thank you for staying with me. But there's an important question to ask now when we talk about the Bible's applicability. Three important questions. The first is this. What is the Bible about? Like, what is the whole Bible about? The more you read the Bible, the more you dive into the stories, the more you begin to understand its message and what the story is about. And here's what it is. The story's not about you. The story's not about me. And that's a good thing. You want to know why? Because if the Bible was all about you and the Bible was all about me, then all we would need to do is download the rules, download the PDF, scan the QR code, follow the rules, just apply them to our life, and have the expectation that life will go well, right? And that's what people say about the Bible. They'll say, yeah, the Bible is not, you know, it's not really God's word, but it can, it's a great roadmap and instruction manual for life. That kind of understanding of the scriptures means that it was written for you, all about you, all for you. And all you need to do is just follow the rules and your life will go well. And if your life's not going well, then you're not following the rules hard enough and you need to follow them harder. You need to apply them deeper. Clearly, you're the problem. You need to just, just listen, it's right there. Just do what the Bible says and you'll be fine. And those of us who have been reading the Bible for any amount of time know that, as the Bible itself says, following the rules 
does not equal a holy, joyful, peaceful, hopeful life. That's why the Bible isn't about us, but it's actually about him. The Bible is about Jesus. The main character of the story of the Bible is God himself, who so loved the world that he wrote himself into the story, came to earth to say to all of humanity, I see you in your darkness and your chaos of your own creation, and I will rescue you. Thus, if the Bible is not about you and it's about Jesus, that actually shapes the way you read every single story in the Scriptures. When you read the story of Noah and the ark, you don't just read a story about how God rescued one family from destruction, but it pointed to, it pointed to a fulfillment in Jesus where God was going to use one righteous man to rescue the whole world. The story of the Passover is not just a story about how the Israelites got out of not dying one night, but about how God was going to use the spilled blood of the Lamb to rescue all of his people from death. The story of David and Goliath is not about how God can help you defeat the giants in your life. The story of David and Goliath is about how God would use an unlikely hero, an unlikely king, to rescue you from the greatest giant of life, which is sin and death, which you could not save yourself. I mean, isn't that what's happening in the Luke 24 passage? Right? It said in verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. By the way, do you see the detail there? Seven miles from Jerusalem, a village named Emmaus. There were two of them. That's Luke going, hey, here's what actually happened because it matters. It matters that there were two of them. And, he's, and he, so he, it goes on and he says, Jesus shows up. And then verse 18, one of them named Cleopas. Why? Because Luke talked to him and got his name. And what was your name again? Yeah, I'm including it. I'm, I'm writing this account of what happened. And Cleopas is like, and he doesn't know it's Jesus yet. He's like, bro, are you only learning about this now? Here's all the things that happened. How our chief priests, verse 20, chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, crucified him, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. What do you see there? Cleopas has blinders on. He's got blinders. He thinks that Jesus was just for Israel. A guy who hung out and heard Jesus for three years still had blinders on. Don't think that you don't. And he said to them, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus says, the Bible is not about you. It's about me. And it all points to me. I'm on every page. So then, if that's what the Bible is about, then this next question is, what is the Bible asking you to believe? What is the Bible asking you to believe? With its 66 books and 1,800 pages, let's be clear. The Bible is a complicated book. And if you're new to the scriptures, if you're starting it for the first time, I want you to know you're not crazy for not understanding what's going on. I'm serious. Because sometimes we open it up, maybe you're a seasoned Christian too, and you open it up, you're like, I have no idea what's happening here. That's not crazy. 
It's a complicated story. But there is this theme that runs all throughout the Bible, and it's this, that God doesn't stop loving or pursuing his disobedient children. That's the central theme. That's the foundation for belief, that God doesn't stop loving or pursuing his disobedient children. We heard Psalm 121 during the worship. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. You know, God doesn't go to sleep on you. You know, you don't escape his gaze. He sees you. And he's pursuing you. Friends, he's in pursuit. He knows what you've done. He knows how you've sinned. He knows how you failed. And he is in pursuit of you. He does not slumber and take a day off. He is in pursuit of you. That's what the Bible wants us to believe. What is the Bible asking us to do? Tim Keller said this, A completely authoritative Bible is the prerequisite for a warm relationship with God. You have to take it all as authoritative. You have to submit to it. If the Bible never contradicts you or challenges you, then neither does God. And you have a God of your own making, not the God of the universe. One of the things that I... A few weeks ago, when I preached on and asked the question, is there a God, I left something out at the very end that I regret, but I want to share with you now. What I attempted to do in that sermon was to give you logical and reasonable reasons for why there is a God. But you know what I forgot to say? You can have all the logical, reasonable reasons for God. You can have all of the historical evidence, the manuscripts, everything, for this being the Word of God. But friends it's still a step of faith to believe it. It's, it's still, nobody was saved because they believed all the facts. Do you realize that? No one was believed because they believed all of the reason and the logic and the facts that were presented. It's still a step of faith. And you know what's great is we learn from the scriptures that faith is a gift of the Lord. And so what the Bible is asking us to do is to take a step of faith. And for many of us in this room, maybe we've done that. I I, I actually know that a lot of us in here have taken that step of faith. And we don't like everything the Bible says, but we believe it. And maybe you're here today, maybe you're watching And I would say this, that if you're exploring God, if you're exploring the Bible, would you ask, would you take a step of faith and ask the Lord to give you eyes to see and a heart to believe? Because it's not a blind faith, is it? It's it's a well-informed faith, but it's still a step of faith. And would you ask the Lord to give that to you? I'm confident that if you do, he will answer you. 
friends, the word itself says is a lamp unto our feet. And what is it illuminating? Is it illuminating us and what we must do? No. It is a lamp illuminating Jesus and what he has already done for you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for your word. I am thankful that within the pages of Scripture, we have everything you wanted us to know about you and about life and about what it looks like to walk with you, to know you. And I'm thankful for the gift of your word. And I pray that every single person in this room and who's hearing my voice, myself included, that you would grow our faith and our trust and our acceptance of your word so that we might experience you. Not a better life, you. Would you give us the faith to believe? Would you give us the faith to trust so that we might experience more of you, your grace, your mercy, your love in our life? We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.